This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 72. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Often in life, we call a person who leads the way in embarking on something different a trendsetter. And our guest this episode, Amy Lawrence, fits that definition. She has paved a pathway for female sportscasters and female sports talk radio hosts, as she's currently the host of After Hours with Amy Lawrence on CBS Sports Radio, where she can be heard from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Eastern Time, serving that night owl community. Prior to joining CBS Sports Radio in 2013, she was the only regular female host on ESPN for nine years, and she's made stops in local radio from Providence, Rhode Island, all the way to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where she was the first female in state history to pilot her own sports talk radio show. She's also handled basketball play-by-play, including an NCAA tournament regional final on Westwood One Radio Network, and in 2015, Amy was honored as one of the 100 Most Important Sports Talk Radio Host in America by Talkers Magazine and was the only female to make that list. Here's Episode 72 with Amy Lawrence. I can't thank you enough, Amy. I greatly appreciate you being able to jump on here. And one of the things that I have to ask, first and foremost, is have you always been a night owl or just adjusted to life working the late night shift with CBS Sports Radio hosting After Hours? Oh, no, I've always been a night owl, even when I was in high school, as far back as I can remember. I am the polar opposite of a morning person, and so uh, this schedule fits me pretty well. I mean, I think night owl is not generally one who works all the way through the overnight. Probably my natural body clock would be, eh, you know, sleep from 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. until 10 or 11. Um, but that's not the shift I have. And it's also not what happens when you have pets. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's a little bit different that you have to make sure to take care of them. So how long has it taken you to adjust to this type of schedule? sure that you ever adjust to it, honestly. Uh, I make it work, and I, I stick to my routine as much as possible, um, but because there's so much life happening during business hours, uh, sometimes, you know, it means that my sleep schedule gets interrupted, but also I found out I probably need to stop reading uh, scientific studies about what happens to people who work overnight or try to sleep during the daytime, but your body isn't naturally made to sleep during 
daylight hours. So even if you're in a darkened room with shades drawn and the light blocking blinds, your body still knows when it's daytime. Uh, and so one of the things that happens is you wake up a lot. It doesn't mean I don't stay in bed or I don't get my, you know, seven hours of sleep. It just means I'm constantly waking up. And so I went on vacation recently and, and I was, I was telling family afterwards, I forgot what it was like to wake up every morning and not be tired because I would sleep through the night, which is not what happens when I sleep during the daytime. Uh, I generally wake up two to three times or sometimes it's every, every hour, every other hour. And so it, that part's difficult. I don't think your body, again, ever adjusts to working overnight. You just kind of make it work. But part of the challenge is that on weekends, I flip my schedule and I go back to sleeping at night and being awake during the daytime. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly tinkering with it, which makes it even more difficult. Obviously very inconsistent. So what does a typical day look like for you then? Uh, let's see. I'm not sure if there's a typical day. It depends on what time of the year there is. You know, if we're talking about football season, it's a lot more hectic. It's a lot more time, uh, you know, on the computer doing social media. But I try to go to bed around 8.30 in the morning. I read a little bit before I turn out the light. So I try to settle my brain a little bit. And then I will sleep until about 3 or 3.30 if I can get away with it. Uh, starts with a dog walk always. <laughs> Coffee and a dog walk, I should say. Uh, and, and then I launch into my day the way that a lot of people would first thing in the morning. Um, usually in the... Uh, in the early evening uh, and the, you know, like going into the hours where there might be games uh, around the country, that's when I begin my show prep. And yeah, you just, you kind of throw in meals and uh, hope every now and then that you can get a nap. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's pretty standard that I would sleep during the daytime. Um, I generally get into work a couple of hours before the show starts and, um, and have already kind of armed myself with some topics and some ideas. Uh, and so, yeah, it's not that different. It just happens to be different hours uh, than what a lot of other radio hosts do. So let's walk back in time, though. Before you had this crazy schedule, before After Hours show, let's go back to Concord, New Hampshire. And when you became enamored as a kid with sports, what did that look like? And why did you have this gravitational pull towards sports? Well, I played it all the time. Uh, I played every sport I could possibly play, every sport my mom would let me play. I started in Little League when I was a third grader, and I still have uh, the picture of me with my matching red hat and red jersey top and the long white pants and the little cleats. Um, and so I, I played softball, basketball, I ran cross country, I played volleyball, uh, we, we played soccer when I was growing up as a kid, we didn't have football in my high school, and so, yeah, I, I just enjoyed the teamwork part of it, and extremely competitive, so that was another thing that, it really helped, you know, it helped to have that outlet. Uh, I love, love, loved being part of uh, team sports way more than I appreciated something like cross country where you're almost running by yourself. Um, and, and then I fell in love with the Boston Celtics when I was a teenager, and we didn't have cable TV where I lived in the boonies of New Hampshire. So we lived in Concord, which was the capital, but we were way out on the, on the city line out in the woods. Uh, we had a bear that lived in my front yard. So we didn't have cable TV <laughs> when I was growing up. <laughs> and... Um, I could only follow Larry Bird and my beloved Celtics by listening to Johnny Most and Glenn Ordway do games on the radio. 
And I just, I, I fell in love with this idea that you could describe something in such a way that people didn't feel like they were missing anything simply because they weren't seeing it with their own eyes. So the descriptions and the scene setting and uh, putting people in the arena even though they couldn't physically be there, all of that was fascinating to me. And I not only was a sports junkie, but then became a radio junkie as well. And I still prefer to listen to basketball or baseball broadcasts on radio. When they're done well, it's a, it's a thing of beauty. It's work hard. Uh, and play-by-play very often is a, you know, it's kind of a lost skill now, but it's still one of my favorite things to do and, and one of my favorite ways to pass time. So, yeah, that was kind of the start of all of it, where my love for sports, my love for basketball converged with my appreciation for radio. And at that time, did you have these career dreams or aspirations that you wanted to be in sports radio? (laughs) All I did was tell people that I was going to be the first female Johnny Most, meaning the first female NBA play-by-play announcer. And that is still the dream job. That's still uh, the, the goal of my career is to get to that point. There's never been a woman who's done radio play-by-play. There have been a couple of women who filled in on games here and there, um, but there's never been one who's held a job as a an NBA play-by-play announcer. And so that's, yeah, that's still the ultimate dream goal. Um, but I had no idea what it would look like. I went to college for communications, um, and then I got my master's at Syracuse for uh, radio and TV. And at that point, there were, I mean, you could count on one hand the number of women who were in sports radio. Uh, And so, you know, people encouraged me to have a backup plan, but kind of figured it out. I started in news, and I'm glad that I did. I was a news and sports reporter and anchor, so I learned the skill of storytelling, but I also learned the skill of writing, writing for radio, writing for broadcast, and I think that's another lost art. Uh, I'm really proud that I have those two particular skills because they make me a much better talk show host. I didn't make the jump to talk shows until 2002, actually. Uh, my last big story in radio was 11 uh, news radio, excuse me, my last big story uh, working for a news station was 9-11, and uh, after that, I made the jump to full-time sports. I was living in Oklahoma City at the time, and they'd never had a female do sports radio. <laughs> so it was uh, new for them, and it was new for me, and it was trial by fire, and a lot of it was really bad. And I'm glad there are no tapes that exist of that time. Um, they still remember me there, though, which is good. I guess it wasn't terrible. Uh, every now and then, they invite me back, and they claim me. Um, and then it just kind of morphed into what it is now, a bunch of local radio stops. Uh, and then finally getting the opportunity to fill in on ESPN Radio uh, 14 years ago. And I slowly caught on there and, and found a niche for myself and turned into a full-time job at CBS Sports Radio in 2013. And did people think that you were crazy growing up when you mentioned that you wanted to be an NBA play-by-play person? Did they think that was oh, I just... Think they already knew I was crazy. Anybody who knew me knew that I was ambitious and knew that I would come up with all kinds of big dreams. That That is who I am. Um, and I was forever talking about sports. And, and you know, in high school and college, um, you know, I wasn't shy about sharing aspirations. And uh, I, anyone who told me that I couldn't do it certainly never, or anyone thought who thought I couldn't do it certainly never said it to my face. I think pretty much everyone accepted that, Oh, that's Amy. That's just what she does. That's how she talks. (laughs) (laughs) Now, and so speaking of that, 
from a motivation standpoint, have you been a person that's been motivated when people tell you that you can't do it to prove them wrong? Or has there also been some motivation you want to prove people right that believed in you? That's a good question. I don't know that the doubters motivated me much when I was younger because you you don't know who they are. Pre-social media, you didn't have contact with the doubters the way that you do now. Um, there wasn't a platform for all of the doubters and the critics to share with you every little thought and, and all the, ra- the ways that you are terrible or you think or you're never going to amount to anything. That's a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, so I, I don't know that I ever had any clue how many people doubted me, uh, but it doesn't really matter to me. Now, probably, when people tell me I can't do something, it motivates me a little more. Um, but I, I truly believe this is the case. If you need external motivation to be really good at something, if you need external motivators to push you and to force you to raise your game to the next level, then you're probably not going to be as good as you know as you think you want to be or you think you are. My motivation is almost entirely internal. Um, my drive, uh, you know, my drive to get to, to where I am, my drive to continue with my career, uh, it's it's always going to outmatch any drive that I could get from someone who's pushing me from behind. I'm so thankful that my family and my friends are proud of me and that they support me and they encourage me and that uh, they don't care what I do for a living. Honestly, they're, they're proud of me and they love me, but if I was Amy Lawrence, a math teacher, they, that, that would be fine with them too. And so it, when you get in this business and you get to have a certain platform and a certain name for yourself, uh, you obviously run into a lot of people who only know you as Amy Lawrence sports radio personality. And I'm forever grateful for the people who like my nieces who couldn't care less if, if, uh, you know, I have 40,000 followers on Twitter and couldn't care less what people think of me, um, or what I do for a living. I mean, that, that kind of is precious now because, um, that's how the world changes, you know, when you, when you become a more well-known commodity. So to them, you're just Aunt Amy, right? Well, I say aunt. Aunt, yes, okay, aunt, aunt. That's right. You are from the Northeast. Yes, I better get that correct, aunt. <laughs> Down here in the South, in Greenville, South Carolina, we say aunt. <laughs> now, so let's actually, speaking of like a cultural change, how was that transition from a girl from the Northeast going out to Oklahoma? Because that's not just an easy move. So how did that come about and why take that chance and move out to Oklahoma? Why not? I mean, they're offering me a job <laughs> and I was ready for something new. Yeah, I mean, I knew that I was going to have to hop all over the place. It's not like I stayed in, in New England to start my career. I went to Messiah College in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for my undergrad, just 10 hours away from home. Then I went to Syracuse. Then I took a job in Rochester. Then I finally went back to the Northeast and worked in upstate Vermont and New Hampshire, but it wasn't in Concord. It wasn't home. Uh, and, and I knew that I was going to have to do a lot of uh, job hopping. That's what this business is about. And, and so why not? But to answer your question, yes, it was culture shock. I had spent 24 hours in Oklahoma, the first time I'd ever seen it or been there uh, before I took the job. Uh, I'm very thankful for some great families that took under their wing and, and really kind of adopted me because it was difficult. I was working on a, uh, you know, on a radio uh, person's salary, a pittance. 
uh, as you can imagine, and, and I didn't have the money to fly home a lot and uh, didn't have the time either because I was working long hours and doing both news and sports. And so um, it, it was culture shock at the time, and I look back on it and I think, wow, uh, that was brave of me. But at the same time, it gave me my college football education. I never, uh, never would understand or would have been so appreciative of college football if not for the four years I spent in Oklahoma covering OU, covering OSU, covering the Big 12, uh, you know, covering Bob Stoops' early tenure in Norman. Um, none of that would I understand if I hadn't been there. And so it was a really valuable four years for me. Um, and now that state has a place in my heart. I was there before they had the Oklahoma City Thunder. I know how badly they wanted a pro team. Um, they're so passionate about their sports and they're very loyal fans. And anytime I get the chance to go back to the Sooner State, it's, it's a huge blessing. I still have a lot of friends and uh, people that I consider family who live there. In that time, though, what were some of the biggest things that outside of just getting to experience college football and being indoctrinated into that, what about in terms of what it was doing for you and your professional growth in terms of just being thrown out to the wolves, so to speak, that you mentioned? Well, it was one of those situations where I had to be really creative on my own. You know, I remember the first sports talk show I did, um, it, it was with an unpaid producer, a volunteer. And, and even though I didn't have to run my own board, very often I was the only one who was responsible for the four hours of content. So it prepared me and it forced me to dig a little deeper. It, it taught me the value of preparation. Uh, do much more prep now than I did then because it's a national show and there's so much more to know. But I think that was really the beginning of me finding my personality, finding my voice, figuring out what worked, and heavens, figuring out what did not work. Um, I remember there was this one particular summer when I wasn't sure what to talk about, and I kind of was out of ideas. And I went on the air after maybe it was a week or a couple of weeks of really getting not a whole lot of response and feeling like I was talking to myself. And I started a what well, it started, but I generated a debate over who should be the starting quarterback for the Oklahoma football team that fall. And all of a sudden, my phones went gangbusters. And I mean nutso for four hours. And I figured out you have to know your audience. So that was a really valuable lesson to me in Oklahoma. But again, it was trial by error. I didn't realize until that moment, but I just remember the light going on. You need to know your audience. You need to know who you're speaking to. They don't care about Major League Baseball here in Oklahoma. Uh, they don't care about the NBA much here in Oklahoma. There are topics that will get people interested, that will hook people. You better figure out those topics and you play the hits and you hammer that home over and over and over again. And so that was kind of the understanding, the beginning of my understanding of you're speaking to a particular audience. It's not about what you know or what you like. It's about entertaining an audience that has, uh, you know, that has specific ideas about what's interesting and, and what they're willing to, you know, to talk about. And so, yeah, that was, that was valuable, but it took a while to get there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you make the transition back to the Northeast and eventually get to ESPN. So did you have mentors that were helping guide your career, so to speak, people that you looked up to, or was this something that you were just finding your pathway on your own and making things happen? Honestly, people ask me that question all the time. I wish I did, but I, I don't have any mentors that I can that I can lift up to you and say, this was someone who taught me the ropes because that's not how it was. Uh, everywhere I went, I had 
people who were helpful. I had people that I could go to and ask questions if I needed to. I'm very grateful for uh, the Syracuse job searching department. It, it was like a, almost like a human resources department that would help in terms of shaping resumes and cover letters. Um, but so much of it was flying blind. I didn't really have anyone that I went to when I needed to ask questions. Um, it, it, you know, it was it was one of those where you kind of you try a bunch of stuff and you see what works. I did have uh, a very close friend in Oklahoma City who was a TV sports anchor, and his dad had also worked in the market, uh, the Barry family. So his dad, Bob Barry, had done OU football and basketball on the radio for decades, and Bob was Channel 4 sports director, his son. And Bob was really good to me. There weren't a lot of men in that market who were kind. Um, I don't know if because I was an outsider and also because I was a female, but, you know, it was, there were some tough days where I felt like I was on my own. Bob was always very kind to me, and he gave me the best advice I ever have received as uh, a member of the sports media, which was you haven't made it in this business until you've been fired twice. In other words, this business is full of stops and starts. It's full of failures. It's it's probably going to be more failures than it is successes for a while, but that's what makes you better. That's what uh, forces you to find a new path and a new direction. Um, and so I never have forgotten that. I share that with everyone who asks me. Um, unfortunately, he died in a car accident about four years ago, and uh, but he was very proud of me until the very end and was always encouraging and supportive. Um, I also had a really great advisor at Syracuse who had worked in the business at CNN and a lot of other incredible experiences that he could share. And even before I had any idea what this business was about, I remember sitting in his office when I was in uh, upstate New York and or Western New York, and he would say to me, you're going to be a star. And I giggled, right? I thought, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, I don't even know what that means. And he was, he was just an incredible source of source of motivation, inspiration, but also a source of knowledge. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago. We stayed in touch for a while. We wrote letters after he wasn't big into email, but we wrote letters after I graduated. And uh, the, so I would say those two men um, were very strong and, and very supportive of me. But in terms of having someone who could show me how it was done as a female, yeah, that, that just didn't exist. It's not that they're not able to. It's just that there just aren't a lot of women who are interested. I think there are a lot of women who are interested in TV for obvious reasons. Um, but just, yeah, just to admit that, it's not that they aren't able to. They certainly are able to. It just is a much diff more difficult road. Um, and, and there's a lot of obstacles. There are a lot of, a lot of resistance. Um, let's face it, you know, sports talk radio is still about 90% male when it comes to the audience, which means that women, again, are, are very often outsiders and are treated that way. And so I think a lot of times the pushback uh, that, that women in, in sports radio get makes it, makes it not necessarily something they want to deal with. It's, it's not worth it. I mean, there are only so many jobs. Um, thankfully, with podcasts and digital broadcasting, there are a lot more people who can practice. Um, but the, the job itself is, yeah, is shrinking. The business is shrinking. The industry is shrinking uh, when it comes to radio. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to do what I love, but I also never take it for granted because there's really no such thing as job security in in sports media. Um, there's no such thing as 
um, irreplaceable, right? I mean, you know, one day someone's on top of the world, the next day you forget all about them. Well, I guess you can check the box, though, in terms of finally making it, because I have read your story that you have been fired twice. So Bob was right. You've made it. You've been fired twice. (laughs) Fired twice and dropped from a rotation more than once. So uh, (laughs) even though they they didn't officially fire me, that kind of counts, too. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, every time that there was a closed door, there was always another path, another direction that was the best one for me at the time or, you know, a better option. Um, I'm not bitter about it. I don't, you know, that not burn bridges. And honestly, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for every twist and turn. Um, it's not me that's in control. Uh, God has always had a plan and a purpose for my life. And that, that confidence and that peace is invaluable. How long has faith been a big part of your life, having that confidence? Since I was six. <laughs> okay, yes, way back. Uh, yeah, it's, it's always been the most important thing in my life as far back as I can remember. Uh, certainly when you're six years old, your level of cognition and understanding is not what it is when you are 36. Um, but I knew what it meant when I gave my heart to Jesus as a six-year-old, as a first grader. I can remember the moment. I can remember the feeling. I can remember the excitement. And, and I can remember all the way through uh, the struggles as a, you know, as a young person, I had a single mom and, and a dad who was a deadbeat and we moved a lot. And uh, just uh, some of those things that you go through as a young person with not a whole lot of stability. Um, God was God was and has always been my Heavenly Father and has filled that void in my life. Um, And it's never not been the most important thing to me, even as I've understood Him more, as I've gotten to know Him more, as I've, um, you know, been called deeper in my relationship, my service to the Lord. uh, It's not ever been something that was just, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, so what? It's always been the most important thing um, as as far back as I can remember. And it doesn't mean it's easier. Uh, I don't, there's no point in the Bible where um, the Lord talks about, you know, being a Christian is the easy path. It definitely is not. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. Even if I could snap my fingers right now and have this perfect, idyllic life that I think I could design for myself, um, I wouldn't because I, I wouldn't trade everything that I think I want for the one thing that I absolutely can't live without. And that's my relationship with Jesus. What about for you in terms of strengthening your faith, your mission trips, and why that's important to you? Gosh, <laughs> there are so many answers to that question. Uh, every year uh, when I go on these missions trips, when I get outside the United States, I am continually reminded how blessed we are as Americans. So I wish, first and foremost, that every American could go on a trip, uh, could serve outside of the U.S. for even a short time to recognize how unbelievably blessed we are as a nation, uh, how free we are. We don't And I'm not suggesting that we have it perfect or that we don't have our struggles here. We certainly do. Um, You can't have a nation of 325 million people and expect that everyone agrees. Um, But I think when you get outside these borders, you go to a place like Cuba and you understand what socialist, communist government is all about and how the people are not free. They can't speak out about the government. They can't watch TV. This is state run. They don't even have mailing addresses, for heaven's sakes, because they can't receive mail. The government would confiscate anything that would that would be valuable that would come to them uh it's it's a 
more of a hopeless attitude and perspective because there's nothing you can do to get ahead. Uh, the, the government uses all the money to put up the tourist areas, but the people are living in very poor conditions five miles outside of Havana. Um, when you travel to Mozambique, which is what I did in 2011, the eighth poorest country in the world, where corruption in the government is a very legitimate, real problem, you understand, again, how blessed we are. And so that's, that's the number one thing that I always get from these trips. But uh, in terms of going outside the United States to serve with other Christians, so uh, working with a church in Cuba that I will be for the third straight summer and doing a youth week, and, you know, we're expecting about 50 kids and teens to be there at this little Cuban church uh, in a village outside Havana. Um, you recognize how big our God is. Uh, he's the same everywhere. He's the same in Cuba. He's the same in Africa. He's the same in Ecuador, which, you know, I spent a couple summers in Ecuador. And he's big. He's so big. And he provides the same joy and the same peace and the same rest and the same grace and mercy everywhere in other languages, across other cultures. And it's such an amazing experience to connect with Christians uh, and to share something special with them, even if you can't speak their language or you don't know much about their culture. Uh, and so those things are, are also valuable, but I think we're, we're called as Christians to, to share, to spread light and salt, uh, to go and to help where we can. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to leave the United States. Uh, you know, our, our own mission, personal mission field should be right where we work and where we live in our own neighborhoods. Um, and, and so, it's an incredible blessing. They're hard. These are hard trips. People say, oh, have a great vacation. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, no, <laughs> it's not a vacation. We work really hard um, the whole time. We're dirty and we're gross and, you know, hot. <laughs> um, but it's it's so worth it because you're building relationships across miles and across cultures. And um, I think the other thing is that when God calls us and gives us an opportunity, it's not because he needs us. We have this idea as Americans, but I think it's just human beings. I don't mean to pinpoint Americans. I certainly had this idea that before my first missions trip to Ecuador in 2009, this idea that God needs me, right? God needs me to go. Are you kidding me? God doesn't need our help at all. He's giving us an opportunity to be part of what he is doing around the country and across the world. He could find someone else. The Bible says if we don't show up and praise him, the rocks will cry out. He does not need us. He's giving us the chance in his infinite mercy and wisdom to be a part of what he's doing and to recognize that those are the types of things we do on this earth that matter. Uh, what we do for people, how we love people, that's the only thing that matters for eternity. It does not matter what job we have, how many people listen to my radio show, how much money we get. None of that matters. All of it pales in comparison. And so to have the perspective of working with people outside, you know, outside the United States, it it's always reminds me what's important, what really matters. Without a doubt, and I think you've gotten me motivated. I need to go sign up for a mission trip now, Amy. I need to find you one. You but like I said, you can do it in your own neighborhood. I mean, there are certainly true. organizations everywhere. Uh, there are there are people who need help, you know, down the street. And so that's always a conviction for me, too. Uh, do I know my neighbors? Do they know that I'm a Christian? Do they know that I'm willing to help if they need something? Uh, and, and sometimes we're, 
more willing to help people that we don't know than we are those people who are right down the street from us. And, and again, that's something where the Lord has been working on my heart. You know, do my neighbors know what I stand for, and, and have I invited my neighbors to church? And so, yeah, there's always opportunities. It's never late. <laughs> In all seriousness, I, I, I do agree with you, and I need to be more intentional about some of those aspects that you were just talking about, because it, it is impactful. So speaking of impactful, what about some of your most memorable moments that you've had covering sports or in sports talk radio? What's some of the things that you, some of the stories that you remember the most? Well, my number one highlight of my entire radio career, sports radio career, actually didn't have anything to do with sports, which was phenomenal. Uh, I just, it's so, it's so it's so perfect. Uh, when I tell this story, I still get chills. It was 10 years after 9-11. It was a Sunday night. I was hosting. I was the studio host for Sunday Night Baseball on my previous network, and we were a main channel broadcast, meaning there were no other alternative broadcasts going on at the same time. Uh, there were no other talk shows that were emanating from ESPN. The only thing on the air uh, across the ESPN family of networks or radio stations uh, was Sunday Night Baseball. And the news broke. Finally, slowly, it trickled in that we had killed Osama bin Laden. And as you can imagine, you know, all of us at ESPN Radio are freaking out. Like, what, is this real? Just like Americans are around the country. We had waited so long for that moment. And so to be able to cut into a Sunday night baseball broadcast, I remember the first time it was in the middle of an inning. And then to continue to offer updates, uh, even as I tell you about it, I, I get all excited, to continue to offer updates as news slowly trickled in, and then the president released a statement, and then people start celebrating around the United States, and you can see people in the streets in big cities who are celebrating and jumping up and down and cheering. I mean, to, to be the voice, to be the person who shared that news with thousands of people was the highlight of my career. There, there isn't anything that has even come close, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, that wasn't even sports, but it was just, I'm so thankful that I was on the air when that happened. Um, because I, I can't imagine a better piece of news to share with the United States. And I remember when every time the mic went on, I started shaking. I mean, that's, that's what a huge deal it was. It's because I wanted so badly to get it right. I wanted so badly for people to hear it. I wanted so badly to not mess it up that it, it was so important to me that I was shaking. Uh, and so, yeah, those, those moments, that moment, something like that may never come along again. But in terms of career highlights, that was it. Um, I mean, there have been other amazing career highlights in terms of, you know, my career goals. Like the first time I did uh, NCAA tournament games, women's college basketball, first time I called a men's basketball game on the radio, uh, I'll, still, I'll never forget the joy that was pulsating through me. <laughs> and I had to keep myself from being way too excited so I wouldn't talk too fast because that is a tendency that I have. Um, you know, the, the first time I interviewed an NFL head coach, I mean, like, just those types of things, uh, they stick with you, those moments. Um, and, and also, even more recently, being on the air when the U.S. women's hockey team was in shootout, a shootout against Canada in the gold medal game. I mean, we were on the air as that shootout was taking place. Uh, you know, being on the air... Even recently, with the night the presidential election was being settled, it was still hanging in the balance when I was on the air. And, and so, regardless of politics, to be the person who is, who is sharing that 
you know, that news is, is weighty. It, I had never been on the air after, you know, the night of a, a presidential election before. And, um, and, and all of those things shape you. You learn how to handle moments with, with incredible magnitude. And there have been some that have been heartbreaking. Uh, most recently, I was on the air the night that the Las Vegas shooting happened. And we started to hear, so I go on the air at 11 o'clock Vegas time, uh, and we started to hear and see rumblings of something big happening, but we didn't realize how big it was. Nobody did at the time because the news was so difficult, uh, you know, to get. They were, ve- they were being very, um, obviously very close, closed-mouthed and, and keeping their information close to the vest because they didn't have the shooter for about an hour, if I remember correctly. And so... That was terrible. It was terrible to be the person that shares that news. Uh, as I go through my four hours, the, the death toll rises from about 10 to 50. And, and it was just, I mean, those are the moments that you think, how in the world can I talk about sports? And you, you pretty much abandon that because sports is not important. Uh, same thing the night that the Orlando nightclub shooting took place. That was also a night that the Stanley Cup championship was won. I mean, it was uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins. They beat the San Jose Sharks in six games. How do you go on the air and and talk about a, a Stanley Cup title, as amazing as it is? It only happens once a year when, you know, there are families who've been torn apart, and people who've lost their lives um, on such grand scale. And, and so those types of things, the – you know, the shooting at the Connecticut Elementary School that happened uh, 15 miles from where I was working that night. Uh, you know, the the voice on the radio that people hear, they automatically uh, assign credibility and integrity. And I hope that I'm worthy of the respect that people give me. And I try to earn it every time by recognizing what's important, what's not. Um, and, and also knowing that sports is just that. It's just entertainment. It is not it is not um, something that should should come above, you know, loss of life or big news events. It's it's they're just games, uh, and, and so I you know there are times when I struggle with why am I talking about sports when there's so much more uh, important going on in our world. Um, but I know people need a distraction, entertainment as well, and that's also uh, something that we seek as Americans. So I try to provide that. That's right, Will, and you do a good job of that as far as balancing it as well. And I think that's important for a host to be able to do that. And what about Larry Bird? Ever able to interview Larry Bird? I know that was one of your idols growing up. (laughs) Idol might be too strong. He definitely is my all-time favorite athlete. Um, But I have never interviewed him personally. I've been part of press conferences where he's been there. I've seen him practice. Uh, or seen him at Celtics practices when I was a kid. They used to have some open practices uh, where the Celtics would, you know, be getting ready for training camp or uh, whatever, whatever. And so I have been in the same place with him uh, and been part of group press conferences, but never had it on my show specifically. So that's definitely on the bucket list. (laughs) Fantastic. So wrapping things up, Amy, in terms of just sports and in the role that it's had in your life, how would you sum up what sports has meant to you? Well, it's certainly been a passion. It's certainly been uh, a lifelong pursuit. I'm so thankful that I played sports because I learned a lot of lessons about cooperation and teamwork and communication. Um, But they also made me a lot better at my job because I played, because I was a fan before I sat in the chair at CBS Sports Radio in the big studio. Um, they, They are 
fun, right? I mean, if you don't enjoy watching, if you don't enjoy the nuances and the surprises uh, and the unexpected, I tell people all the time to expect the unexpected. If you don't appreciate the drama and, and things like the Washington Capitals finally, after 50 years, winning their first Stanley Cup and all the relief and redemption that comes along with that, if you don't enjoy the success of other human beings, probably not the the job for you, but I do. Uh, I'm the person who laughs when people, other people laugh and cry when other people cry, and they still suck me in. They still hook me. I mean, I, I will admit there are times when I wish I could be like the average fan and only watch the games I was interested in, only watch the teams I wanted to watch. I, I tell people all the time, that's, that's the difference between me and you. You get to watch what you want to watch. I have to watch everything. Uh, and so it's it's a job. I mean, I'm not saying at all that, it, that it, you know, there aren't times when I wish I didn't have to be attached to my TV and watch a game that, you know, isn't all that interesting to me personally. Um, but the, the ability to be able to find the human interest stories, the successes, the failures, those are things we can all identify with as other human beings. Uh, the, the, you know, the changing of jobs and the starting over fresh and you know these these athletes have families they have moms they have dads they have painful moments in their own lives so the ability to be able to relate to them uh, and to make them more human I guess uh, despite the fact that many of them make millions of dollars I think that's something that is forever a pursuit of mine uh, and it gives me a unique outlook too so I I enjoy the creativity I enjoy that sports are never the same from one week to the next it's never the same there's always something new there's always something fresh there's always great material it's the ultimate reality tv show out there <laughs> sure is. <laughs> that's right and so what about words of wisdom any mottos phrases quotes or even just life advice that has meant a lot to you that you would like to share well, if you haven't been fired twice, you haven't made it in this business. <laughs> yeah, I passed that one along. But I tell people all the time, I try to serve as a mentor to young people who are attempting to do this business now. Figure out what you're good at and turn it into your job. Figure out what you love. Figure out what you're passionate about and pursue it because you can, in fact, Love what you do. Your work, your career doesn't have to be a job. It doesn't have to be just the source of a paycheck. I don't think, no, let me amend that. I know that I wouldn't have stuck it out this long. The bad hours, the moving all over the country, the living so far away from my family, um, the, the, at times, you know, really terrible pay. I'm thankful that CBS Sports Radio is not terrible pay, but I mean, there have been times when I, you know, struggled to pay my bills. All of those things are reality when it comes to sports radio. But if you love it the way that I love it, it is always worth it. And and so none of it, I don't look back on any of it and have regrets. And, and, and that's what I tell people, figure out what you love and do it. it you know, we, we live in a country where you can do anything. You know, I was just, I was on Twitter on Independence Day and I was thinking about what independence means to me because it means something a little different to everybody else. And I tweeted this, I tweeted, for me, independence means the freedom to worship the God I love, because think about it, across the, the world, there are a lot of countries, including Cuba, where you're not allowed to be overt about your religion. You do not have the freedom to worship any, any way or any God that you choose. Uh, and so I'm thankful for that in the United States of America. 
But I'm also thankful that as a woman, I can pursue any career that I choose. It doesn't matter how few females they are. It doesn't matter if it's a male-dominated industry. I get to do it. And that's how I feel about sports radio and about sports in general is I get to do this for a living. I would do it for free if I could live that way. My boss doesn't hear that. Um, but I, I mean, I could because it's, it's that much fun for me. It's that challenging for me. It's still new and fresh every day. And yes, there are times when I'm exhausted. There are times when I don't feel like going to work, but we all have those. As soon as that mic light goes on, as soon as I start talking, all of that disappears. And I remember every single day why I chose this as my career. Well, you've obviously found your pathway, your passion, and you're making it happen. And you've also been so gracious to be on my little passion of this podcasting journey for me. So, Amy, I can't thank you enough. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's so good that uh, we connected. And if there's anything that I can ever do to help again, please let me know. I definitely will take you up on that. I greatly appreciate it, Amy. All right. It's been good to talk to you. Pursuing your passion as a career isn't always easy, and there's going to be many ups and downs and twists and turns, and Amy's journey is just living proof of that, where she's had setbacks, but her faith has remained strong as new doors have opened up. But those doors didn't just open up for Amy as she just sat there idly waiting for the next opportunity. Passivity plays no role for a trendsetter, and Amy wasn't and isn't afraid to jump into that arena pursuing what she loves. Now that finishes episode 72, and remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.